Hello, everybody. Welcome to Unbossed. I'm Jessica Burbank filling in for the beloved Senator Nina Turner. And I'm joined by America's sweetheart and Rebel HQ contributor, Jackson White. Jackson, how are you today? I'm doing great. It's good to be here with you. I'm back here in Jersey. I spent two weeks with my family in St. Louis. It was refreshing. Got to be around my nieces and everything. And uh, it's good to be back. So I'm feeling good about the year ahead and I'm ready to get it going. Welcome back, uh, our Jersey boy, Jackson White, our favorite boy in New Jersey. We've got Chivalrous some- Chivalrous Chacho, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <Chivalrous> <laughs> <Chacho>. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is a great show. I'm glad you're here. Uh, people like this dynamic duo. And we've got some fun stories because the circus is in town. It's day three of the vote for speakership. Uh, we're talking about George Santos again. Things are getting interesting with him uh, taking his seat in Congress. And then later in the show, we're gonna discuss medical credit cards. But let's get right into this first story, let's watch. Even having my favorite president call us and tell us we need to knock this off, I think it actually needs to be reversed. The president needs to tell Kevin McCarthy that, sir, you do not have the votes and it's time to withdraw. Well. Hannity also decided to put the pressure on Lauren Boeber on Fox News. Let's watch that. Kevin McCarthy does not have 218 votes. Kevin McCarthy and you will have, not and be you speaker. have 20. I, Kevin I asked McCarthy you a very specific question. If by Listen, Friday when we, when we you get don't this have right, 30, I will not, Sean. I will not withdraw. Our asks not. were were not petty of Kevin McCarthy. They were not self-serving. We simply were asking for commitments on what the American people want to see. They want to see a vote on term limits, a vote on the Texas border plan to secure the southern you, border. Congresswoman, and for crying with all out loud, Sean, we asked for a vote on a budget that actually balances. Imagine. Imagine a Congress that stops so spending you money that we don't have. We are going supporting to get this right, and we are going to get the right speaker. If Sean. you only have thirty, to be clear, you will not withdraw. Thirty is going to be a beautiful number. But you're to telling reach. Kevin McCarthy and the and the two hundred and three people that support him to withdraw because they don't have two eighteen. That's what you're saying. Look, it's obvious by tonight's motion to adjourn that Kevin McCarthy and his supporters are already getting you, voter fatigue. And I, I, I asked I'm you a simple question, Congresswoman. I, I, you know, I feel like I'm getting a, a liberal. I'm not going an to support Kevin liberal. McCarthy, Sean. Okay. The biggest insult you can get from Sean Hannity. I feel like I'm getting an answer from a liberal. It seems like this is about more than politics, from Lauren Boebert. Uh, it seems like it's personal, and that's because it is, as Jim Himes revealed yesterday. Let's watch. First of all, that group has been getting bigger, not smaller. Every yeah. ballot has given them more energy, right? And I will tell you, too, from conversations, I won't say with whom, but with certain high-profile members of that group of 20, I think there's five, six, seven, maybe eight of them who um, who there is nothing you can give them other than Kevin McCarthy's head, right? Mm. And I've actually heard one of them say it, which is, look, we're open to anything. We're open to negotiation. We're just not going to do it with Kevin. I heard one of them say, because Kevin lied to me, and then he lied about me. So this has become deeply personal. Jim Himes chopping it up, causing some drama. It's pretty clear that there's a coalition of folks who will never vote for Kevin McCarthy. So who's to say what happens next? A lot of people are talking about the prior speaker vote that took many rounds, lasting 133 rounds and months. We don't know if that's going in this direction, but this morning we did have Matt Gates cast a ballot for Donald Trump, which was a very interesting move. Can Donald Trump be Speaker of the House, given that he doesn't hold a seat in the House of Representatives? The Constitution is ambiguous on the matter. It says, the House of Representatives shall choose their Speaker and other officers. Constitutional scholar David Fort said, it would have been unthinkable for the most populous House not to have its leader be part of the representatives who are elected by the people. More reported by NBC, Fort said, nothing fits that would make the speaker anything other than a member of the House, except for the Constitution's silence on the issue. Fort says, noting that the Articles of Confederation said members of Congress shall have authority to appoint one of their members to preside. 
It seems that Matt Gates has decided that the Constitution's silence on the matter and ambiguity there is enough for them to nominate someone who doesn't hold a seat in the House of Representatives. Nevertheless, there's a lot of chaos going on and who's to say? Uh, who's gonna end up being speaker. It seems like Lauren Boebert and her faction will be withholding their votes from McCarthy for as long as possible. Jackson, what are your thoughts on the circus? So, well, first of all, I'm not gonna do anything to stop it, nor should any of us. But, you know, <laughs> in politics and in life in general, but, you know, especially politics, you gotta choose your battles. And this one really doesn't make any sense for several reasons. One, the Republicans don't have the Senate. We're going into a lame duck session and pretty much the second half of anybody's term is typically gonna be pretty flat, pretty deadline. Joe Biden really isn't gonna try to do much of anything in his second half anyway. And um, you know what's really the difference if Kevin McCarthy or anybody else were to lead the Republicans in the House along policy lines because they're still homogenous in that regard. But outside of that, just speaking from an objective standpoint, um, Kevin McCarthy really is the man for the job when it comes to who's going to lead the Republicans in the House. He's very well known. He's recognizable. Um, you know, he's not he, he's not totally insane like Lauren Boebert. But interestingly enough, it wasn't just Sean Hannity, but Marjorie Taylor Greene was actually telling everybody else who was voting against him that they need to get it together. So um, if this is the best that the Republican Party can do for the foreseeable future, then they're going to beat themselves in every election coming up. Yeah, I don't think there's any sort of play the Democrats have here either. Uh, they're consistently voting for Jeffries, keeping those 212 votes every single time. Uh, but there are some making the case that we should have a coalition government. And definitely you have Lauren Boebert saying to Hannity, you know, we're asking for concessions. We're asking for reasonable things. We're asking to have a balanced budget. And then you have people like Jim Himes with the New Democratic Coalition saying, you know, we're going to need to raise the debt ceiling. So we're stalling now and choosing a speaker. But a few months down the line, we're gonna have to have this struggle over how do we keep the government open again and raise the debt ceiling. Uh, so I don't think the circus is really blocking them getting anything done. Like we haven't seen the House of Representatives or the Senate uh, get huge legislation passed to make life better for everyday working people in the United States. So I'm of the opinion that uh, having this debate is is fine. Uh, what do you think about just the debate among Republicans and how the Democrats are kind of keeping to themselves and consistently voting for Jeffries? I mean, I don't really think that the debate matters. I mean, when it comes to whatever, whatever establishment Republicans and Democrats debate all the time, like the debt ceiling and things like that, they always raise it anyway. You know, like when it comes to is the government going to be shut down? No, not for that long, because the ultimate price of the government being shut down for a long period, no one's going to pay that. You know what I'm saying? So it's like the arguments that Republicans have really don't hold any weight anyway. And again, whether it's Kevin McCarthy or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Donald Trump or any of them who were to hold that position, it would all be the same in terms of what policy direction they would want to go uh, go at anyway. So, I mean, the Democrats, unfortunately, can take advantage of this and say, "Oh well, we're better than that mess over there." So you know, it's up to us to get more progressive candidates in office and hold the Democrats' uh, feet to the flame. Yeah, this this debate question is what I want to turn to next. So people are saying various things. Uh, some people are saying that what's going on in Congress right now is terribly embarrassing for the Republicans, given that when the Democrats have nominated speakers in the past few years voting for Nancy Pelosi, it was never a question as to whether or not they had enough votes. Uh, Judge Jeanine with Fox's The Five posted this to Twitter. She said, it's time to get together as a party and stop embarrassing yourselves in front of the rest of us with the headline there being Capitol Hill chaos, McCarthy loses third round of House Speaker vote. We now know we're on to the seventh or so. Then you have Ben Shapiro calling the whole thing a clown show. Ben posted to Twitter, McCarthy's job as Speaker and the job of the GOP is to say no, that's it. Since Dems control the Senate and the White House. What is the actual policy advance by stalling him here other than to hand Dems a PR win by depicting the House GOP as a clown show? So they're fighting over there. The Republicans are fighting amongst themselves, trying to pick a speaker. Uh, and the Dems are just letting them while they allegedly booze. Let's watch this video. 
They want us to fight each other. That much has been made clear by the popcorn and blankets and alcohol that is coming over there. She thought that was very funny. Um, I don't think it's that funny, but it, it touches on something interesting, which is this embarrassment that there's some disagreement over who should be the speaker. I think these people within the Republican Party are clearly of different political factions in any other country. The Marjorie Taylor Greens and Lauren Boberts and the extremists would be a separate party from the more mainstream establishment conservatives. Likewise, the progressive caucus would be its own party and wouldn't be a part of the Democrats. But because we have this two party system, you know, there is going to be disagreement within the party. And the idea that it's embarrassing that the entire party of the Republicans, one of two, that there's disagreement within it is embarrassing and that the debate itself is a clown show, that just doesn't sit right with me. Like that doesn't feel like a democracy. And you have some people saying, well, listen, like this is just embarrassing. It's not even a healthier substantive debate. It could be. Like there's a reason it's not. I think the debate is actually good. And I hate that actually we had consensus going into voting for Nancy Pelosi time and time over, and everyone just fell in line with that. Jackson, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think you raise a good point. And I think that ultimately that goes to show that we have to change the way that our socioeconomic system works in and of itself. You know, we can't have a one vote system to where ultimately two parties are gonna rise to the top. You know, that suck up all the infrastructure, that suck up all the resources and the network. So one of the key things we have to do is not just go after, you know, corruption and money in politics. But also the very way our system is set up, you know, giving more parties a chance, you know, because at this point, setting up a third party is really for not. So um, we have to go after the way that this whole machine works and functions. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's a good note to end that story on while we turn to something a little bit fun. I think it's hilarious. So we know. There is a brand new member of the House of Representatives, someone who lied about his work history, about his education, about who he is as a person, George Santos, if that's even his real name. During roll call, it seemed like he was non-responsive to it. Let's watch. Santos. Santos. Sarbanes. Jeffries. It seems like he got skipped because he had to be reminded by his colleague next to him that his own name was being called. If someone calls your name in a room of people, usually you hear it. Sometimes we even hear something that sounded kind of like our name, but wasn't our name. So is his last name really Santos? Is his name George Santos? I don't know. We do know he's had a very rough first week in Congress. He got lost in the Capitol as reporters tried to get a comment from him. He ends up hitting a dead end and having to turn around with a swarm of reporters around him. Let's watch that. Do you have any statements to your constituents? Do you have any statements to your constituents? Surely the reporters know their way around the Capitol if you're a DC correspondent. They probably knew he was walking in the wrong direction. They just let him go. No one was gonna correct him. It's kind of sad though that he's got no one on his side. Here's a photo of him taking a seat in the back of Congress while the other members were mingling. He's just sitting alone on his phone there. It's kind of sad. Reportedly another member of Congress went up to him to try and chat. Then when he introduced himself by the name George Santos, they ran away. No one wants to be associated with this guy for good reasons. He lied on his resume, right? He lied to the people. He was asking to vote for him so he could represent them in Congress. But still seeing that photo, I feel kind of bad for the guy. We have another amazing video of George Santos on the floor of Congress staring down the barrel of a C-SPAN camera. It's giving the office. Let's watch that. 
feel like he has to know what he's doing there. Like, is it all a bit? Is it all a joke? Jackson, what do you think? I mean, the the symbolism in this segment is beautiful because he's like walking down the hall and he goes to a dead end because there's like nowhere left for him to go. You know what I'm saying? There's nothing left that he can do. And then, you know, him like, oh, oh, I forgot my name. Like it, that is like the epitome of who he is. He's he's not the man. You know what I'm saying? Like he's not the guy. And, you know, I don't I don't know if he thought that this was going to lead to anything positive. I, I don't know what he was thinking at all. No, because, again, the level of lying he did is not typical, isn't normal. You know, it's not because so much of what he lied about is so easily verifiable. So he's really of no use to anybody. You know, nobody wants to be associated with somebody like that. What what are you going to do with somebody that is unpredictable in every way besides absolutely nothing besides shun them? But that's the bet he made for himself. Yeah, there's something about George Santos where he just has this childlike energy. He seems (laughs) kind of clueless, like he absolutely does not have that dog in him. If there's one thing we know about George Santos, he doesn't. You look into his eyes and he kind of reminds me of like a puppy dog. But puppies do things that are bad all of the time. Like it's hard for me to take what who he is as a person seriously but what he did is objectively terrible like to lie to people uh when you're running for office and then to win the seat and say you know what i'm gonna keep my seat because people lie all the time like he told people his mom died on 9-11 like his lies are just so extensive and then to say i i know i said i was jewish but i meant i was jewish sort of kind of it has to be a <laughs> It absolutely has to be a bit. Uh, well, unfortunately for him, he he did it in the public spotlight. He could have kept it low key because you know reports have come out about him basically doing stuff like this his whole life, which people like him tend to do. You know, like if you look at people like Charles Ponzi, you know, like he, he was doing that his whole life until it landed him in a situation he couldn't get out of. So, oftentimes people who are that type of pathological in any type of negative way, it's who they are. They they. They can't really do anything else. Not to say that he's above help, but I wouldn't want to be the physician in charge of that. It's like the perfect storm of American politics. It's just that usually the guys we get elected to Congress that have been committing fraud again their entire lives are usually like big businessmen. Like I think that's the only difference is like he's fraudulent in more petty ways than the usual suspects. Exactly, exactly. He's, He's fraudulent in ways that really don't make sense. You know what I mean? Like most people are fraudulent in ways that it's still there's a means to the end, you know, but he's totally incompetent. He's just doing it for fun. Just very chaotic, neutral vibes from George Santos. Well, he got his notoriety. If that was he, if that's what he was looking for, he got it. There you go. Here we are talking about you on TYT, George. All right, we've got to go to a break. We have more for you on the other side. Welcome back to Unbossed. I'm Jessica Burbank. I'm joined with America's sweetheart Jackson White today. Uh, and spin the wheel. Spin the wheel is not how the Republicans will be picking the House Speaker. It is a way to win prizes when you sign up for an annual membership. Uh, you get to spin the wheel and win limited time perks from TYT. An Unbossed T-shirt is one of those prize options. So you can check it out and sign up at tyt.com slash spin or scan the QR code to get started. Uh, so that's very exciting stuff. You can spin the wheel, win an unbossed t-shirt maybe, or other good prizes. I wish we could spin the wheel and pick a speaker, but we cannot. Uh, instead, we get a circus. All right, we're joined on Twitch by Spectraphonic, who said J squared, great lineup. J squared, that's a good one. I like it. I like it. It's always good. And every time we own, it's better. So it's working out. Yeah, we need more uh, of the name mashups. We've got mm-hmm. Senator Dragon said, take a shot every time McCarthy loses. It's my drinking game the next week. Uh-huh. Maybe the death. I would have been just week. right. <laughs> yeah, I would have been. I would have been just right. I would have been feeling perfect. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we have Donald James said, Jackson, awesome dude. I love you, buddy. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. It means a lot. Christina said, Jessica and Chacho, I love you guys with a lot of emojis. Thank you, Christina. Thank you. Appreciate it. We love you too. But what we don't love is Delta Union busting. So 
you may know that many airlines have unions and Delta does not. Uh, Delta workers are of course looking to unionize given the working conditions they're facing. But this will not be without of course union busting. I mean, it's the United States of America in 2023 now, and this is what they do. Uh, workers are calling what they've created a culture of fear. So workers are facing stagnant wages and short staffing along with just a plethora of terrible working conditions under Delta. And despite the airline enjoying soaring profits coming out of the pandemic, the unions reporting from the Guardian are in the process of collecting a majority of union authorization cards to merit a union election with the National Mediation Board announcing a joint collective effort several weeks ago. So various workers within Delta are unionizing. It's not just flight attendants or one faction or the other. It is the flight attendants who are organizing with the Association of Flight Attendants CWA. Then we have ramp agents with the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, the IAM, and mechanics with the Teamsters. So Delta Airlines has aggressively opposed unionization over the years. Thus, the company has the lowest percentage of workers currently represented by a labor union among US airlines, currently at around 20% for more than 80,000 employees at the company. So a previous union drive before the pandemic was not successful. And of course, the pandemic disturbed all kinds of union organizing efforts, but there's a new effort that's taking off at Delta. A recent surge in union support across the United States uh, you know, grueling working conditions throughout the COVID-19 pandemic and the impact of inflation on stagnant wages while unionized pilots at Delta Airlines recently won a contract that included a pay raise of 34% over four years. Currently, there are about 16,000 to 17,000 ramp agents uh, at Delta Airlines. So that's a lot of workers to get together. So many of them because of the culture of fear are not open to talking about this effort. But anonymously, a ramp worker stated, they're removing more and more full-time lines. Many of these lines aren't 40 hour a week lines, they're 32 hour a week lines. So it's not a full-time job. You have a high seniority position. They've given their life, their bodies to this company. They've paid their dues and in order to hold weekends on a good shift, They have to take a 32 hour line, which is a pay cut. So the culture of fear is alive and well at Delta. They claimed arbitrary write-ups and that's created a culture of fear at the airline and scheduling cuts that have also reduced pay time off for workers, which have driven workers into signing union authorization cards. So Delta only has themselves to blame for the workers organizing. And of course they're organizing against the workers while They're experiencing record profits. Look at this headline, Delta sees air travel boom, nearly doubling its 2023 earnings. So without these ramp workers, without the flight attendants, without the pilots, without the machinists as well and aerospace workers, the planes don't take off. Delta makes no money and meeting their most basic demands so that they have a decent work environment and actually get paid for the work they do. And when they're giving 32 hours of their week to Delta, they can be considered a full-time employee and enjoy benefits like healthcare. No, instead Delta has decided that their workers are expendable, which is not surprising, but the workers at Delta are making some strides in unionizing, which which is good to hear. Jackson. So I think that you know stories like this, as well as anything similar, whether it be Starbucks union busting tactics, Amazon, Tesla, anything along those lines, reflects the importance of culture within any type of system. You know, political culture, business culture, and just kind of the general idea that a lot of people really have that government and regulations get in the way, and that unions are a bad thing because it keeps uh, corporations from being able to profit to the max, and it gets in the way of shareholders, and that's the culture. And that's, you know, let alone a corporation's overall goal is to seek profit. So, you know, this is one of those issues that we can't take our eyes off of. And one that we can track back because right around when Ronald Reagan was elected into office, things like union unionization, workers' rights, and just the working class in general, the wealth started to shift more over into the shareholder economy. 
and regulation started to steep it because importantly the culture was ramped up again that you know we gotta we gotta let the business loose we gotta let give people the captains of industry we gotta take the chains off of them because you know they're benevolent and they're the ones who are gonna set us straight so i think you know obviously uh big ups to the workers for doing what they can and it's important that we tell these stories but this just reflects the culture that's live and well in, in the business in america yeah, from the consumer perspective as well, what the airlines are up to lately is awful. I mean, the way that they're just canceling flights, overbooking flights, people who are trying to go home and see their families have been left at the airport. And then when they do catch a flight, their luggage is absolutely missing. Stuff that they needed to bring with them, clothes, maybe they're going on a work trip. And the airline is making record profits despite giving this despicable service. And this isn't just happening during the holiday season, it's been happening year round. And who deals with the brunt of consumers who are disgruntled about not being able to get on the flight they paid to take to go see their families? It's the workers that are gonna have to deal with all of these people who are terribly mad at Delta Airlines when the workers are just as mad at Delta Airlines as well for different reasons, of course. But something's gotta give here because in the United States, when you have corporations that are trying to pay less and less of their revenue out to labor to cover labor costs, despite seeing increases in productivity. So their workers creating more and more things of value, corporations profiting more and more, but paying workers less and less, who's gonna be able to afford the plane tickets at that point? Who are you going to sell the product to that you're creating? And so it really feels like people like Delta have no sense of what life is like for everyday people and these workers. Because if they did, they'd realize that they're responsible for tanking their own company. And now a lot of people are talking about alternatives like high speed rails, which of course would need to be a big public investment because it seems like Elon would rather create private roads for Tesla to drive on. Uh, but something's got to give and Pete Buttigieg also isn't regulating the airline industry either, which is his job. Any last thoughts on this, Jackson? Yeah, and you know, lest we not forget that, you know, airlines like Delta Southwest, they just got billed out. They just got a ton of tax dollars and still fired thousands of workers, used that money to boost their shares. And they're still like, nah, we don't, you know, even though we got this money and these resources to help our workers, eh, because they can, because that's how the laws are set up. Um, you know, and I was actually flew Southwest and I was several days late coming back too. It didn't impact me that negatively, but a lot of people it did. And these are the companies that get so much grace from, uh, you know, the government that they're supposed to be against. So, you know. Yeah, those are those are PDB's friends from McKenzie. Uh, he's gonna help them out, not regulate them. <laughs> Speaking of rich people doing whatever they want, uh, regardless of the consequences, we're gonna take you back in time to March 2019. Watch this. Operation Varsity Blues culminated early this morning when approximately 300 special agents from the FBI and the IRS criminal investigations set out to arrest 46 individuals across the country for their roles in an international college admissions bribery and money laundering scam. You might remember there are some high profile names involved with this. Let's watch. This morning, two of Hollywood's brightest stars are now facing major jail time in a college admissions cheating scandal that's rocked the country. Both women, Felicity Huffman and Lori Loughlin, are accused of conspiracy to commit mail and wire fraud, all to help their daughters gain access into elite colleges. So we have some updates on this story. Huffman would eventually serve uh, 14 days in federal prison while Loughlin served two months. Fast forward to now. The mastermind behind it was sentenced yesterday to three and a half years. Reporting from AP, the punishment for Rick Singer, 62, is the longest sentence handed down in the sprawling scandal that embarrassed some of the nation's most prestigious universities and put a spotlight on the secretive admissions system already seen as rigged in favor of the rich. Certainly is not rigorous for the rich. Uh, so prosecutors had sought six years behind bars, noting Singer's extensive cooperation that helped authorities unravel the entire scheme. Uh, Singer began secretly working with investigators in 2018 and recorded hundreds of phone calls and meetings that helped authorities build the case against dozens of parents, athletic coaches, and others 
arrested in March 2019. So how did this all come to light? As Senator Nina Turner would say, I am glad you asked. Authorities in Boston began investigating this scheme after an exec an, an executive under scrutiny for an unrelated securities fraud scheme told investigators that a Yale soccer coach had offered to help his daughter get into the school in exchange for cash. The Yale coach led authorities to Singer, whose cooperation unraveled the entire scheme. Coaches in sports such as soccer, sailing, and tennis took bribes to pretend to recruit students as athletes, regardless of their ability. Fake, fake sports profiles were created to make students look like stars in sports they sometimes did not even play. The bribes were typically funneled through Singer's sham charity, allowing some parents to disguise the payments as charitable donations and deduct the payments from their federal income taxes. Singer took more than 25 million from his clients paid bribes totaling more than $7 million and used more than $15 million of his clients money for his own benefit, according to prosecutors. So beyond the bribes, there is a more vile factor to all of this. One of the most disturbing parts in Operation Varsity Blues is the revelation that some white students posed as black students on their applications to take advantage of affirmative action. Further, Singer's fictitious foundation that accepted bribery payments was ostensibly created to support black and brown students in undeserved communities to have more college opportunities. Again, 15 days, two months, and three and a half years for the people who did this. And think about the students who could have gone to these schools who are actually deserving of it, who actually worked hard, who actually were from underserved communities that are typically discriminated against, that laws were created so that there was some leveling of the playing field. No, none of that. Jackson, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, it, it, these stories can be easy to overlook, but also just when it comes to law, it can be easy to paint these stories. It's not that big of a deal because nobody got physically hurt necessarily. But you pointed out, and you know that's stretching on that this type of crime has broader effects on more people. You know, because when you go about this type of fraud, this type of theft, you're delegitimizing institutions that people need to be able to trust in. You're not only delegitimizing yourself, but you're robbing opportunities away from people, like you pointed out, students who worked hard who deserve those positions. And often, you know, whether it's something like this or it's maybe a bank rips somebody off or, you know, people in the crypto space, you know, you can thrust people into being deeper into poverty maybe than they already were, which causes people to have to make decisions that can impact their lives, like selling illegal products or robbing this and that because they're desperate, um, because they got ripped off or because an opportunity got taken away from them. Uh, you know, so it really is that big of a deal. So, you know, unfortunately, they're getting a slap on the wrist. But I think that one of the benefits we have in modern times is with social media and just the Internet, we can educate people on why these types of crimes are so destructive to society. Yeah, that's so well said. I think it's interesting as well. I can't help but think about the people who are afforded every single privilege say you know they went to the best private schools their parents paid for them to get into the best private schools so then they had the best sat scores and they had the best gpas so they could get into the best colleges because maybe they had tutors and they had the ability to do extracurricular activities instead of be working for all of the hours that they were home from school to help feed the family or take care of younger siblings there are so many legal ways that the wealthy have a leg up for getting their kids into the best possible schools. That's a problem as well, that inequity. And then despite all of those advantages afforded to you, you still have to bribe a soccer coach or a tennis coach or a sailing coach for a sport your kid doesn't even play to get them into the best schools. Like I think that's just adding insult into injury. I went to you know Brown University, which is an Ivy League school, and there's such a divide between the kids who worked really hard to get there and came from low income families, and then the kids who are afforded every possible advantage to get to that point. 
Uh, and there's a tension between those two groups. But then when this admission scandal hit, there was a total change in the culture of now rich kids had to say, you know, I, I actually did have good SAT scores or I actually did get admitted. My parents didn't give them any money. And so it just really is interesting how dynamics are changing and the meritocracy illusion is falling apart in the United States. Uh, but this is nothing new. So reporting from the New York Times, consider Harvard. A 2019 paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research found that over 43% of white admits are ALDC, athletes, legacies, deans, interest, and children of faculty and staff, compared to less than 16% of admits for each of the other three major racial or ethnic groups. And that around three quarters of them would not have been admitted otherwise. As the Times reported in 2018, a federal lawsuit revealed emails between Harvard's Dean of Admissions and university fundraisers suggested special consideration for the offspring of big donors, those who have already committed to building or have an art collection, which could conceivably come our way. Just disgusting. Jackson, any last thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you know, just finding, uh, finishing off with it. Like you said, it really is disgusting to take these types of opportunities away from people because, you know, even if it's not an Ivy League school, having a, a that's legitimacy, that's credibility. And, you know, I'm, I'm 30 years old and it wasn't until relatively recently that my name meant anything because I ain't got nothing behind my name for real other than things I started and things I did. So it took a long time for that to mean something. You know, and in that time, I very well could have gotten thrown in prison for selling drugs and stealing stuff because I was broke and all the jobs I had access to were terrible. So, you know, th th that's the reality of this. And especially if you're taking this away from people who are like 18, 19 is wrong. So um, the, the, the picture needs to be painted differently. So well said. Jessica Burbank and Jackson White on Unbossed. We've got to take a break. We'll be back. Welcome back to Unbossed. I'm Jessica Burbank filling in for Senator Nina Turner, joined by America's sweetheart. I'm saying it until it catches on, Jackson White. And uh, I yeah. like it, man. I, I'm not against it at all. I feel that. <laughs> good. I like it. I think it fits. Uh, I think it's a good nickname. I think so. We have something new for everybody, the progress report. So this is a newsletter. It's a weekday morning newsletter from TYT. And you can subscribe at tyt.com slash newsletter. Uh, so big corporate newsletters, you know, they want you to believe they have the inside story. TYT is bringing you a newsletter that offers something better, insight. So subscribe to that. And when you can't tune into the show, you can have some TYT to start your day off. So on Twitch, Nerdo says, we love Jessica's badass brains. Thank you. Marshall says these two are such an awesome combo, J and J all day. Rivaling Johnson and Johnson with that. Oh, Manuel says I like Jessica's union and pro worker reporting so much. I hope she gets more recognition for it. Raise your fist if you like her reporting too. Thank you. It's very important, you know, coming from a working family to use the platform I have now to speak truth to power for the workers. I couldn't not do it the way I see it. You know, it's uh, us versus the people on the top. Nothing else matters but that fight. And the Supreme Court, another another representation of the ruling class power uh, in the United States today, and uh, they're run by other rich puppet masters. So the owner donors, as Senator Nina Turner would say, hold major sway over our political environment even when it comes to the Supreme Court. This article from the New York Times highlights that. Uh, a charity tied to the Supreme Court offers donors access to the justices. Reporting from the New York Times, the charity, the Supreme Court Historical Society, is ostensibly independent of the judicial branch of government. But in reality, the two are inextricably intertwined. The society was founded in 1971 by Chief Justice Warren E. Berger 
to make the court more welcoming to visitors and to restore dusty old portraits of justices of yore. Every chief justice since has served as its honorary chairman. But over the years, the society has also become a vehicle for those seeking access to the nine of the most reclusive and powerful people in the nation. The justices attend the society's annual black tie dinner soirees, where they mingle with donors and thank them for their generosity and serve as MCs to more regular society sponsored lectures or reenactments of famous cases. Logically, the next step here is for us to follow the money. So where does the money go? Reporting from the New York Times again, the society has raised more than 23 million over the last two decades. Because of its nonprofit status, it does not have to publicly disclose its donors and declined when asked to do so. But the New York Times was able to identify the sources behind more than 10.7 million raised since 2003. The first year for which relevant records were available. At least 6.4 million or 60% came from corporations, special interest groups, or lawyers and firms that argued cases before the court, according to an analysis of archived historical society newsletters and publicly available records that detail grants given to the society by foundations. So if I'm a justice on the Supreme Court and I run into some corporations at this event that's very fancy. And this is kind of like my social club. Now that I'm a Supreme Court justice, it's a little bit difficult to socialize outside of these very exclusive circles. So if someone is giving a ton of money to the historical society, they're my friend, I kind of like them. And maybe they also have some vested interest in gaining access to me. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm ruling as to whether or not what their corporation is doing is constitutional or not. It's a conflict of interest, it's clear as day. Jackson, I wanna bring you in here. Well, unfortunately, this is how things are set up. So why would people not take advantage of it? You know, I mean, we, we're so used to the corruption that these types of stories, you know, like aren't like huge news that like really has everybody up in arms because this is just another day in the office. And, you know, we just saw, uh, I forgot, I'm forgetting his name off the top of my head, but one billionaire who basically helped put all three of the latest uh, conservative Supreme Court justices on the seat. And then those Supreme Court justices basically just being conservative activists, reversing Roe v. Wade, which doesn't make any sense other than you're just being on the activist side. So, you know, that's what we got now. And because of the way the Supreme Court set up, those people are going to be there for a long time. And we're going to have to deal with them in as many ways as we can. You know, uh, the reversal of Roe v. Wade has led to states doing little things here and little things there, but they still could get prosecuted for it if people get caught. So it's just a huge mess, and it's a result of things just like this. Yeah, a thousand percent. It's it's just disgusting the way that not only this, but like you said, there are billionaires grooming people for the Supreme Court who are willing to do the bidding of corporate power in the United States once they take their seat on the bench. So let's turn to more corporate power hitting us where it hurts in our pockets, but also when we're down, when we're in the hospital, when we're seeking medical help. Every person is deserving of health care. That's something that I fundamentally believe and we believe at Unbossed. But no person should have to drown in medical debt in order to receive it. Look at this headline. Progressive senators sound alarm over rise of predatory medical credit cards. What a dystopian phrase, medical credit cards. Several senators are warning that medical credit cards are looking to profit off of patients. Here's a list of senators who wrote to Wells Fargo and Synchrony Financial. Elizabeth Warren, Ed Markey, Bernie Sanders, Chris Murphy, and Sherrod Brown. The letter goes on to state the following. The concern here is the current structure of our healthcare system offer often requires that patients enter into medical debt in order to access services they need. Within that context, patients often under duress because of concerns about their medical care are being pushed into and then locked into medical credit cards despite the availability of alternative payment options that might be more beneficial and offer lower interest rates. 
given the circumstances in which these credit cards are used, medical credit cards could be predatory to patients seeking medical care and leave patients stuck paying higher costs with hefty high interest debt. Now in the United States, we're already paying more than other nations for our healthcare. More than 100 million people are saddled with medical debt in the United States, collectively owing upwards of $200 billion. So the issue with medical credit cards, I think you can anticipate the reason that so many people are predatorily roped into taking on medical credit cards rather than paying off their debts in other ways, banks have identified medical credit cards as a lucrative opportunity to profit off of the worsening crisis of patients who are unable to afford their medical care. So this isn't a new problem, it's just a growing problem. Reporting from Common Dreams, back in 2013, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau or CFPB ordered Care Credit, Synchrony Financial's medical credit business to refund up to 34.1 million to consumers who were victims of deceptive credit card enrollment tactics. And recently, last month, CFPB hit Wells Fargo, which offers a medical credit card named Health Advantage with 3.7 billion in penalties for a slew of abuses and called the institution one of the most problematic repeat offenders of the banks and credit unions. So as a reminder, those figures of how many millions people are in debt, it's one in 10 adults, look at this headline, who owe medical debt with millions owing more than $10,000. So not only is healthcare outrageously expensive and health insurance terrible and difficult to come by in the United States, oftentimes when you have it, you still have your claims denied by your insurance. So this is not just a crisis of people being uninsured. This is a crisis of people who are supposed to make people who are sick or dying better. Instead, using their job and the service they provide, whether it's a hospital or otherwise, to make a lot of money, to get richer at the expense of literal human lives. And someone could be saddled with debt because they had a life-saving procedure. Jackson, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, just the whole concept of uh, medical credit cards is just steeped in the idea of profit. And it shows that profit is at the center of our healthcare system in the first place. And unfortunately, it's, I mean, think about the ROI on this. If you have a lot of capital and resources like these banks do, or any type of private investor who gets in on this, you're gonna make a lot of money off of it because so many people don't have health insurance. So in terms of profitability, it's incredibly lucrative if you're somebody who already has liquidity. And you know, just our whole healthcare system, it, we all know it's a mess. But I mean, just think about how like every year, if you, if you don't have healthcare through like, you know, maybe a company that you work for or something, or if you're not on Medicaid or Medicare, you have to re-sign up every single year. And every year, you know, the prices may be a little different and the packages are, are somewhat different. A lot of people end up not having health insurance because the process is too complicated and annoying and people may figure I'm young and healthy, so who cares? You know, so the, the, the whole system is just a joke. It's like, an, it's like numbers, it's like the lottery. People are just running and getting into it and trying to get a profit like it's sports gambling or something. Yeah, it reminds me of the debates we had in 2020 during the Democratic primary when we were talking about the issue of healthcare in the United States. And you had so many people like Pete Buttigieg, even Elizabeth Warren, who had a plan for universal health care and then rolled it back. And then you have people like Pete Buttigieg, who the whole time was saying people should have access to health care. If that's how you feel about healthcare in the United States, it is because you've never had to struggle to access health care. Access is not a word that fits in that sentence. You need to guarantee health care. You could say, yeah, I have access to purchasing Twitter. I don't have billions of dollars. It's an illusion to say that anybody could get healthcare in the United States if they want to, when we have a minimum wage of 725 an hour. It's impossible for people to purchase healthcare in the private market. And these businesses are not offering healthcare to their wage employees. So it's just insane that the people that are tasked with representing the public have no idea clearly 
what everyday life is like for the public. If you've never had to live paycheck to paycheck, if you've never had to be uninsured and go through a sickness and take on medical debt, these people don't understand fundamentally what the American life is like for the people that they're supposed to represent in a democracy. And this is the crisis with oligarchy. It's not just that the rich people are using their power to accumulate more wealth and become more rich, but they have no idea how to govern for everybody else who lives in the country. And that's really the reality of the United States of America. And that's why we have these big banks saying, hey, I've got the solution, put them in debt for the rest of their lives. Jackson. Yeah, I think you you know nailed it. You know, access is such a loaded and vague term. We all have access to many things, but that doesn't mean that we're actually going to obtain them. So, um, you know, I think you closed it out perfectly. And um, unfortunately, it's going to be a long continued fight to fix our healthcare system. But it's, the fight is worth it, and the fight is one that we're not going to give up on. And as Senator Nina Turner says, uh, we can't give up the fight. Uh, Jackson, can you tell the people where to find your work? Yes, uh, you can follow my YouTube channel at uh, youtube.com slash at politics and paper. I do daily streams. I do what I call nerdcasts. I'll talk about things in depth. I'm about to start having guests on. I deleted my Twitter, so you can't find me there. But yes, uh, politics and paper on YouTube. Check me out. America's sweetheart, Jackson White. Thank you for tuning into Unboss with us during the circus. Thanks for watching us instead of C-SPAN right now, because I know it's tempting. Uh, It's been great breaking down the news with you, Jackson, and with all of our viewers. Thanks for watching Unbossed. We'll see you here, same place, same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Unbossed. If you like the show, then you'll enjoy our other podcasts on TYT Network like The Damage Report with John Iderola, Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie, and The Young Turks. Make sure to listen and follow, and if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating.